Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Laura Sikuro, who's going to share her insights into the mysteries of the microbiome with a special focus on maternal and child health. Laura is an assistant professor at the Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. It is a gorgeous place that I've had the great privilege to uh, to visit. So uh, uh, there, Laura heads a research program working to advance understanding of the microbiome and the links between species, strains and genes on health outcomes. Laura was educated initially at the University of Colorado in Boulder, which is also a lovely place, and then at the University of Washington in Seattle. And she brings a wealth of knowledge from her experience as a researcher. And by the way, I'm not hinting that uh, at the University of Washington and the city of Seattle aren't also gorgeous. She's, she's worked at some lovely places. Her career has spanned several disciplines from contributing to the development of cryogenic and desiccating strategies for preserving tissues in human transplantation, to studying the vaginal microbiome at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center uh, back in Seattle. She's even done some work checking out bobtail squid at the University of Hawaii in Honolulu. Laura is a member of the Canadian Society for Microbiology, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and the American Society for Microbiology. And mentioning Hawaii, that's where her career started, really, and she also fell in love with scuba diving and tells me that she has swum with all sorts of creatures. So, Dr. Laura Sakura, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Jonathan. So, I want to, I want to know about what inspired you to uh, follow a career in the medical field, more specifically into the microbiome. But first, please... Bobtail squid. I'm also a scuba diver, but I had to look them up because I didn't know what they were. And I understand they live in the Pacific, Atlantic and Indian Oceans. God bless the Internet. They live in shallow water, camouflage themselves with bioluminescent bacteria that live with them in a, in a sort of symbiotic relationship. And because of their shape, are known charmingly as dumpling squid. Have at it, Laura. Tell us about your squid work and then what got you into the microbiome. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I had the privilege to have my first job out of college, right on the Pacific Ocean at the University of Hawaii uh, in Honolulu. And I was a research technician in a lab working on one species of the bobtail squid called Euprimna scolopes, or the Hawaiian bobtail squid, which is actually only found in the Hawaiian archipelago, that particular species. And what that species does after these little tiny squidlets hatch in those shallow waters, they're about the size of a pencil top eraser, they collect a single species of bacteria from the ocean water around them. So out of tens of thousands of different bacteria in that ocean water, one species of bacteria called Vibrio fisheri is collected by the squid and has the opportunity to colonize the squid. And it has a specific light organ in its sort of stomach, its ventral body cavity. And this bacteria migrates into the light organ and then establishes a lifelong symbiosis, as you said, or a beneficial, mutually beneficial relationship um, living inside the squid's light organ. 
And as you said, it will produce bioluminescence, which is used for counter predation. So allowing them to escape predators and not cast a shadow um, during their nighttime uh, swims where they're out feeding. So I got really interested in how a specific association between one species of a squid, a host, complex host, and then a single species of bacteria, how that specificity is established. And I was able to contribute to mapping out these tissues, mapping the structure of the tissues where the bacteria reside. And what we learned is that there's very specific anatomical structures and very specific pathways and sort of gateways that the squid has to select for this particular bacteria. And I just really became fascinated by that intricate kind of dance and molecular crosstalk between a host and a microbe. And that's really driven my work ever since. Even though now working on humans, we have a much different situation where we're working on one host and tens of thousands of different microbes. Yeah, when I was reading about these squid, and I'd always convinced myself that if I didn't get into medical school, of being a marine biologist like Jacques Cousteau and being a scuba diver, that was going to be the way forward. And I know a lot of people like to scuba dive and see the big creatures, but sometimes just getting up close and personal to a coral head and staring at one square centimeter and just seeing what, what's living there is, it's truly humbling, isn't it? How, mm -hmm. how diverse and how wonderful the life, life is. So, you know, in preparing for this, I, my knowledge of, of this topic was de minimis, and I did a bit of reading and discovered that the term microbiome was first coined as such in 1988 by Whips and colleagues. But the concept of microbes, bugs, interacting with their environment dates back to the late 1800s, and the Ukrainian scientist, Sergei Winogradsky, and I've probably horribly mispronounced his name, Today, ease of access to an audience, courtesy of the internet, the opportunity to profit from pseudoscience makes everyone an expert. The microbiome. What is it? What do we know and not know? Set the scene for us. And although most of our audience are medical professionals, some are not. And frankly, even those of us who are, such as me, may not know the truth about this field. So have at it, Laura. The floor is yours. Okay. Yeah, it's definitely true. You know, when I started in this field about 15 years ago, we still had to very gingerly talk about the fact that bacteria are found all over our body, including in our mouth and our urogenital tract. People were a little off put by that often. And I think now, you know, we're making progress. People understand they, they sense the importance or they're interested in the importance. But you're correct that there's still a plethora of antimicrobial products being marketed, um, in particular to young moms. You know, we want to make our babies very sterile. That's where what we are taught. And, you know, we are moving into a period of time where there will be pseudoscience, as well as a lot of commercially driven sort of citizen science, where people can just pay to send off their microbiome samples, and then the companies own that information. And we'll just take survey data from those participants. And what they're doing is essentially coming up with what they think are drugs and then putting them back into people. So it's going to be an interesting time period here in the next 10 years as this really starts to move into something that we will see more people trying to take up is manipulating their microbiome. 
So what it is, is a whole lot of microorganisms and there's different kinds. So there's about 10 trillion bacterial cells in each human body, about the same number as our human cells, about a trillion fungi, about 10,000 eukaryotes. And these can include worm-like creatures called helminths, as well as single-celled organisms, and about 100 trillion viruses that infect both um, eukaryotic cells and bacteria. And so lots of different types of organisms, and these have all basically co-evolved. And when we look just at the bacteria in the human gut, now this is the body site that's really a veritable microbiome metropolis. So lots of bacteria in the human gut. Each of us has a microbial metagenome or the collection of bacterial genes in these bacteria. That bacterial metagenome is 10 times greater than our human genome. So 20,000 genes in the human genome, 200,000 genes in our gut metagenome for each of us. And since the human microbiome is so individualized with each human having its own collection of species and strains as unique as a fingerprint, then collectively among humans, it's thought that there are over 200 million or 10,000 times the number of genes in the human genome, 200 million bacterial genes contributing to human health and disease. So you can imagine that we have a massive undertaking that we still have to you know, really dig in and understand not just what bacteria are there, which is what we've focused on largely in the microbiome, but we need to look at also all the other types of microorganisms, the fungi, the eukarya, work on them is sort of not as well developed, it's coming along. And we need to understand the genes, how they are acquired and how they contribute to human health and disease. I'm sitting here with my jaw dropped to the floor because the sheer scale of this is bonkers. You know, the, the, there's bacteria in our gut, but then there's also viruses in the bacteria as well as our own viruses. And, you know, every time I see someone who simplifies healthcare or disease care, whether it be a politician or whether it be a marketeer, I always think, feel like saying, you've got to be, you've got to be kidding, right? And yes, I think one of the first things we should dispel is, I looked at some work a while back that was about orally taken live cultures or, you know, improve your microbiome. Well, the truth of the matter is most of these things that you take get eaten alive in your stomach by the acid there. So if the, if we're on a journey of understanding the microbiome, and let's say it's a journey from, oh, I don't know, London to Calgary, for instance, where are we in the journey? Have we Are we halfway across the Atlantic or have we not quite taxied away from the terminal at Heathrow? You know, I'd say that we've taken off and we've weathered some turbulence and, you know, it's not maybe as turbulent, smoother, smoother sailing, smoother flying, but we have a ways to go. We have a long ways to go. I think that scale really speaks to that, you know, even in terms of the tools that we have to to do this work, we have some remarkable tools, but we don't have enough and and we don't have cost-effective ways really to do a lot of the work still. We can get into that more at the end. <laughs> All right, okay. So, well, let, let's dig into an, an area that I hinted at in the introduction and that you've mentioned. Tell us about your research into the maternal microbiome. 
how does microbial transmission from a mother to her child impact lifelong health of the child? And not just in the immediate postpartum period, long lasting consequences. And just to show my ignorance, during my lifetime, the concept of, I don't know, uh, uh, allergies to certain foodstuffs. I'm looking at a bag of peanuts on my desk in front of me. Um, I'm thinking about that. And I'm thinking about the the, the clean theory, the, the hygiene theory of disease, that we're protecting our young'uns from exposure. Like when I was a kid, you know, guddling around in the mud was considered de rigueur. And we don't kind of allow that anymore. So tell us about the journey from the, the uterus into the greater world and how the microbiome plays its role. Okay, yeah, so, you know, really what you're getting at are a couple of the greatest debates in the whole field. So I'll, I'll set up those. Um, so essentially, when does a newborn baby start to be colonized by bacteria? When does this microbiome start to form? It, it's still one of the greatest debates in the field. I think most, including myself, think that this happens at birth. So essentially the inside of the amniotic sac in the uterus is largely a sterile environment. And so when that is ruptured and the baby starts to be delivered, whether vaginally or by cesarean, that colonization process begins. And we do know that through that process, regardless of, again, whether it's a vaginal or cesarean birth, a lot of microbes from the mother are transferred to the infant. And we've been able to track um, that even specific strains can be seen tied between uh, or directly inherited from the mother to the infant. But it's not necessarily a majority. It's a kind of a hard question to ask technologically still. And you know, I think also just technological limitations are sort of behind why we still debate whether some colonization happens in utero. Some still favor that explanation. But most of us are, I think, thinking that it's beginning at birth and some degree of direct inheritance happens. But how and really the full extent of that is still not fully understood. And then we have this debate also about the effects of a vaginal versus a cesarean birth, which really drove a lot of early efforts for mothers to kind of take that into their own hands and maybe do vaginal seeding of their children. So wiping vaginal fluid on their infant if they had had a cesarean delivery in hopes of helping stimulate a natural microbiome development. By and large, now that we don't believe that is a safe or useful practice, um, and I think that has diminished. But what we've learned is that there are differences in the microbiome early on when a baby's born by a cesarean, but it's not the only factor that's very important. Antibiotics that are taken by the mother, for instance, for group B strep, GBS, or other reasons at birth or immediately falling, following birth, or antibiotics taken by the baby also greatly impact the success of that early transfer in the initial colonization. And finally, whether a baby's breastfed is the third really big influencer. So those three things together really set the stage, birth mode, antibiotics, and breastfeeding, set the stage for the development of the infant gut. And what I'll say is that, you know, whether that development is optimal and how it affects the lifelong health of the child is still very actively researched. We don't know everything, but we do think that when it's heavily disrupted by antibiotics, for instance, coupled often with cesarean or premature birth, 
then there can be higher risks of allergy, asthma, and other sort of atopic diseases, obesity, and things of that nature. Um, but like I said, we're still learning about that. And we also are learning that even if the fetus itself is not colonized, the maternal microbiome can influence fetal development through metabolites and antibodies that circulate through the placenta. Wow. And I guess with the passage of time, we'll ascertain if, you know, other disease states are more common in, in children who've been delivered uh, by cesarean versus by, by the vaginal route, or I guess there's a, I guess we're going to have to make you a frequent guest on this podcast. (laughs) Let's talk about another organ system. Um, and let's talk about the microbiome and the the gut brain axis as you've done some work in that area as well, right? Right. Yeah. No, I've um, been working collaboratively in this area uh, for a number of years. We're just getting ready to publish a few of our first papers. But I think what's important, this is a really, you know, interesting idea that we've kind of come full circle from people not really even wanting to believe that there are microbiome bacteria living on and in every externally connected surface of our body to really accepting that they're physiologically intertwined with every system. And that includes the brain. And so, you know, it was so surprising early on that bacteria in your gut could influence your behavior or how your brain's functioning. And now we start to understand more deeply that that this is the way that it is. And we don't understand fully what drives this gut-brain connection, but we are starting to understand it's, it is very complex and it involves many systems, the endocrine system, the nervous system, um, as well as just circulating metabolites that are produced by the bacteria. What we think is that certain microorganisms, though, help promote a healthy gut barrier and other microorganisms trigger an immune response that causes certain products to be released that damage gut tissue. And when that damage happens, we we call that a leaky gut. When your gut is kind of leaking, then more bacterial products can seep through and access nerves in the bloodstream and potentially travel to the brain or send signals to the brain affecting what's happening in the brain. And in addition, microbes are known to produce metabolites that feed into the production of neurotransmitter molecules. So lots of interesting connections and ways that the microbiome can play a role. The work I'm doing is both with Parkinson's and neurodevelopmental conditions like autism, OCD, Tourette syndrome, and ADHD. And what's interesting is that we see a lot of stronger signals in Parkinson's. So more consistency across studies and a bigger sort of signature of of microbiome differences. And they're, they're much more subtle when it comes to neurodevelopment. And so we don't know a whole lot yet about cause and effect, though. Um, some of the work that I'm doing suggests that the bacteria themselves may contribute more directly to this tissue damage and causing the leaky gut than we, per- we initially thought. We thought it was more that the bacteria just trigger the immune system. But we think that the bacteria can also mimic the signals that trigger the immune system and, and sort of play a more active role in promoting that state, very specific bacteria. And understanding that might give us some opportunities to block those activities with medications or drugs to help promote that healthy 
barrier in the gut and then hopefully improve brain health. That's fascinating stuff. So uh, moving on a little bit, what, what were some of the key messages from your work that uh, investigated genetic and genomic approaches to understanding the interaction between the human micro uh, microbiome and, and, and disease? Yeah, so, you know, kind of continuing from the, the thought that I ended with on the last question, you know, we grossly underestimate what bacteria can do. And I have a sort of unique perspective on this, I think, having come from working on that symbiosis system with the squid, where it was such a different type of system, right? A, a symbiosis, an ocean or marine symbiotic system where, you know, a lot of the bacterial molecules and functions, they're sort of analogous to the same ones we see in humans, but in humans, we think of them as causing disease. And in the squid, a lot of the same kinds of signals were really establishing a beneficial symbiosis. So when I look at the human microbiome, I see a lot of assumptions that bacteria are just these simple little metabolic machines naively eating certain biomolecules and like pooping out other biomolecules. And reality, I know that they co-evolved with us and they have enormous potential then to have very specific proteins that, like I said earlier, can mimic our proteins. They can use those proteins to bind to our cells, invade our cells, activate or change our gene and gene expression. They can really then manipulate complex molecular pathways that we've long thought are just inherently host or human. Um, so I think we have a lot of really neat things to learn as we get deeper into understanding all of these massive number of proteins that these bacteria produce. And then the second thing I'll say is that they're so unique and so beautiful. So every body site that is colonized in the human body has a very unique community, including the vagina. And, you know, I work in that area heavily as long as with the gut. And it's definitely understudied, underappreciated because we have a long social history of just kind of discomfort with your genital body sites and talking about them. And it's even more so when it's a female body site. So... You know, the thing is, there's so many bacteria found in the vagina that have amazing functions, and they're so unique. There's no other microorganisms like them on Earth. And what we've started to learn is that even the tissue, the human tissue of the human vagina is not like any found on Earth. We cannot replicate in any kind of animal model the specific interactions between vaginal tissue, human vaginal tissue, and human vaginal microbes. So we can't replicate it in rodents and even not perfectly in primates. What about in, in other species? What do we know about that? So about the vaginal microbiome in other species? Yes. No, even less. <laughs> so you can imagine, like, there's not a lot of money out there to study this, right? Like in the human space, you know, the, the two main drives for studying it are we, you know, are trying to promote sexual health. And, and that's really fundamentally anchored in reducing HIV transmission. Um, and we are trying to understand how it contributes to pregnancy outcomes. You know, really, when it comes to an argument for studying vaginal tissue and vaginal biology purely for the sake of understanding female specific, you know, biology, it's, it's not a successful argument often. <laughs> so, um, you know, we still have a long ways to go. I think even in the fundamental understanding of the tissue, it's amazing how many 
assays that we are running and, and techniques we're applying that have never been applied in that system because it is so understudied. Now, um, I'm a bit of a science fiction geek. There was a wonderful trilogy in five parts uh, called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And for those of you, I don't know if you've, if you've read it, it is hysterical. And there's a, there's a creature in it called the Babel fish, which is a small yellow fish that one character puts into the other character's ear at the beginning of the story. And it, the, the Babel fish thrives on uh, language energy. So it hears one language and it, it pushes your language into your brain so you can understand what aliens are saying, which is a brilliant device to deal with how do these earth creatures uh, listen to everyone. And there's an observation about how magnificent life is in the universe, so diverse that something has evolved to have that function. Yet what you're telling me is what's going on in our, um, in our various, the term you use is body sites, is equally as astonishing as a babel fish. <laughs> yeah, it is. it is. I mean, I can see why you really got into this. So um, I, I noticed something on your web page, and I quote, Chorioamniotic infection is the suspected cause in 20 to 40% of women experiencing preterm labor. In cases of very preterm birth, let, birth let, less than 32 weeks or second trimester mi miscarriage, infection rates are even higher. That blew me away. So can you outline the progress your group is making at the University of Calgary to identify diagnostic markers and treatment strategies that could impact the effect the microbiome might have to trigger early labor and presumably ways to prevent that happening so babies have a higher chance of survival. Yeah, right. So yeah, preterm birth remains the largest cause of uh, neonatal deaths. So it is really important. And, you know, I think there's been, you know, again, a sort of broad assumption that you know, microbes aren't involved in the process of labor and delivery unless a woman is is displaying overt signs of infection and inflammation. Um, so, you know, oftentimes chorioamnionitis can be diagnosed through this overt signs, so a rapid heart rate and fever, um, an influx of uh, immune cells that can be seen in some of the uh, amniotic tissues that are after delivery and so on. But we think that it may be more um, sort of under the radar than that, that sometimes microbes, very specific microbes, again, carrying out very specific functions, could be playing a role engaging with that host immune response, that host hormonal signaling in ways that may promote or activate even labor and delivery. So certain microbes we have shown, and these are gram-negative bacteria, and they're found in all different human body sites, but in different ratios and sort of different species sort of prefer certain body sites. And it's well known that in the oral niche, these bacteria trigger inflammation and tissue destruction associated with periodontitis. And they do this by secreting proteases or little enzymes that degrade proteins. And so what we've been working on are, for the first time, <laughs> mapping out all the proteases that are produced by Bacteroides bacteria in the vagina. And a lot of preterm birth associated bacteria, 
So they've done these studies where they follow women, they do vaginal sampling early and then the middle of pregnancy, and then they follow to find out who has a preterm birth and who doesn't. And in those studies, they've identified specific species of bacteria are associated with a higher risk of a woman eventually having a preterm birth. And some of these bacteria belong to these Bacteroides clades, so Porphyromonas, uh, certain species of Porphyromonas, and certain species of Prevotella. And we find that they're very proteolytic, and they can target cervical structural proteins like collagens and elastins. And we know that the human body naturally remodels these proteins using very similar enzymes to trigger cervical change, ripening, and delivery. And so what we are finding is that bacteria have that same potential. They can do it directly, and they can trigger, activate the proteins that do it from the human. So they can activate the human matrix metalloproteases that do it. So we're finding a lot of really interesting things of how bacteria can modify the structures of pregnancy tissues, potentially initiating or augmenting labor. And, you know, we also are interested, can they directly stimulate labor contractions? So that's where we're heading next. Okay, well, diving into your webpage further, I saw the focus on metagenomics, developing methods of detecting and assembling the genomes of uncultivated species and strains. Please tell us, what does that mean and what are the implications for human health? Right. So really, when we are talking about bacteria, our definition of species is constantly evolving and it can also be a little controversial. We've, we're getting closer, I think, to settling on a new definition that is more based on genomic content and structure than it is on sort of the more traditional me uh, methods of defining a species. So their morphology or their gram staining, you know, the sort of observable traits that we used to do with a microscope, because the scale of what we're studying is so much bigger and the lens with which we detect and understand these bacteria has become molecular, gene and genomic oriented. So our definition of species now really resides in genetic identity. And as we go into that realm, what we're finding is that certain species of really well-known bacteria known to be tied to sort of healthy development of the infant gut or tied to certain diseases. We're now finding that that one species is actually maybe 10 different species. <laughs> so we're sort of resolving and redefining to a f sort of increasingly high focus lens, the definition of what is a species. And I think a lot of the work that's on ongoing in my lab, which is exciting and also, you know, a little overwhelming still at times is that to really, what we're seeing is that the function, when we're trying to really understand like why we see some of these trends, uh, one of the questions we're interested in is why do very specific species of lactobacilli dominate the vaginal microbiome? It's the only body site that has a naturally dominant bacteria and we still don't know why. And so we're trying to understand that and, and why that happens naturally, but sometimes it's also lost that dominant species and that can cause health consequences. When we're looking at that question, it's we really have to look at allelic diversity of specific proteins. So 
you know, I think that changes over time, right? As natural mutations are acquired in our microbiome, just as it happens in our DNA, as our cells divide and we acquire mutations and that can increase risk for things like cancer, our microbiome can acquire mutations and that can change the community composition and our health. So we have to learn to dive into the microbiome at the level of alleles, gene alleles, and we're really just starting to scratch that surface to understand how we can manipulate and how the microbiome contributes to human health. The sense that I have at the moment, Laura, is kind of that nightmare that people have when they wake up in a cold sweat because they're They've just dreamt that they're sitting in an exam room. They open the exam paper and they realize they don't know anything on it. I'm just realizing how little I know about so much. Um, <laughs> so let's get a little bit fanciful now. What, what emerging areas of research are you uh, particularly exciting for you? And where do you think your personal focus uh, is going to be in the near future? Not like you haven't already outlined a massive body of work. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. So, you know, this this idea that we're we're really interested in right now about how microbiome proteins mimic host proteins and how they directly, you know, how proteases made by the microbiome directly manipulate the host. I think that's going to open a lot of avenues. It's just not it's not a way of community it's, it's not a method of communication between the microbiome and the host that's been explored yet so i think we're excited to see that unravel and like i said earlier you know the the vaginal microbiome has some unique potential to lead the way actually in successful therapeutics so because it's 10 times simpler than the gut in terms of the number of bacteria and because it is, like I said, we know very clearly what's healthy. There is a massive amount of epidemiological literature now that suggests that this one species, Lactobacillus crispatus, is the most optimal microbe. It is protective against preterm birth. It is protective against all STIs. It is protective against a dysbiosis of the microbiome called bacterial vaginosis. So we know that this one species, if it's dominant, which a lot of our studies, including some of mine, have shown in adolescent girls, it typically is around the world, the dominant microbe. But over time, it's not always dominant. In some women, it's not dominant. And if we could learn how to have this one microbe be restored therapeutically, I think it really could have a significant role to play in promoting women's sexual and reproductive health. And we're close. I think there are lots of trials with this microbe that are you know, now five or so years in, and there are some benefits, but interestingly, we can't succeed in permanent recolonization. Even when we know naturally in girls, it successfully colonizes and dominates, we can't promote that long-term. We can only give it, you know, administer it over and over and over again to make it continuously be there. It won't sustain itself when we deliver it therapeutically. And that we have to figure out, you know, really the mechanism of why that's not happening in our therapy, in our therapy. And if we can figure that out, we will have a successful therapy. But that just goes to show also, 
when it comes to the gut, that's 10 times more complex and where diversity is healthy or a lot of different microbes and balance is healthy, we have a long way to go to establish therapeutically how we manipulate that. Yeah. Other than when you go to an, a new location around the globe, you know, be careful about drinking the water, as they say. So, Laura, if if you had three wishes to be granted by a magical genie to advance the science in your realm of study, what would those wishes be? Okay. I thought about this. So, you know, I think the first would simply be increased funding for female and women's health. So we do really need to catch up because we've had a centuries long and in my view, wholly unjustified dismissal of female bodies, women's voices, women's experience. And it's pretty pervasive in medicine as we're learning we misunderstand a lot of um, how different diseases manifest and, and how they should be treated in women. And we really are lacking funding. It's still a common experience of mine for me to be told that my work on the vaginal microbiome is not impactful. It only affects half the population. And we need to get over that and catch up our biological understanding of female bodies. Um, that's number one. Number two is, um, you know, I think we're so close. So I'd really like to see this this globally accessible, low cost, effective solution for promoting a healthy vaginal microbiome, looking like it's going to be some pre or probiotic relating to L. crisp or Lactobacillus crispatus. And third, because we have this massive undertaking in understanding the genes, the metagenome of the microbiome, we need to get to a really cheap way of getting a bacterial genome. So we keep talking about our $100 human genome, which is just about within reach. But the reality is, even though a bacterial genome, one organism's genome is much, much smaller. So on an individual genome level, the bacterial ones are very small compared to the human. Um, but each one of those still costs about 20 to 50 bucks. So we really need to get to like a 10 cent bacterial genome to kind of match our $100 human genome so that we can accumulate enough of them to understand this metagenome, to understand all these 200 million genes that are playing a role in the human body. Well, I rather sense that we're going to have to have you back uh, to do regular updates. Um, this has been amazing. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Laura Sikuro, for speaking with us today and certainly educating me and uh, for taking the time to beautifully explain your research and how important this body of work is. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. It was a pleasure. So um, you're most welcome. And we're going to have to look at the diary and get you back. So dear audience, please subscribe to ensure you never miss an episode. Like us on social media. Check out the archives that are positively thriving with great episodes, if not bacteria. And join us next week for another episode of the EMJ podcast. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.